0: Well, good morning, team. That's weak. Good morning, morning. y'all. Need need some more coffee, maybe. It's good to see y'all this morning. It's always a blessing to to gather in the house of the Lord to worship and to sing and to pray and to hear from the Word of God. Um, In the circles that uh, Pastor Brandon and Pastor Charles and Matt and I run in, uh, one of the most overused words of 2020 was the word "unprecedented." Okay. Well, close behind that was the word "pivot. We've got a pivot and do, But unprecedented" was the, uh, by and large, most overused term because it was the qualifier for every other word like unprecedented times, unprecedented situations, unprecedented uh, opportunities, unprecedented issues, and that is true. Um, we know that 2020 brought a lot of things that were unforeseen global pandemics, uh, tons of racial injustice, uh, economic stresses isolation. There was whispers of murder hornets. I don't know if (laughs) you may ever got to play with those, but that that was on and like Sahara Sand coming over. And I mean, lots of people have been isolated and there's been lots of depression and anxiety. Uh, Lots of really difficult things going on. And 2020, we lost a lot of folks uh, that passed on into eternity. Some of them are really well known. Uh, People, famous people, uh, people like Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna uh, lost him tragically last March. Uh, We lost Black Panther. Chadwick Bozeman was just was just heartbreaking. Uh, we lost Alex Trebek. I mean, we might as well just cancel Jeopardy. I mean, no one ever wants to watch that again. We lost some icons of music and film and TV, uh, like Sean Connery, right? Sean Connery was the best 007 of all time. We can fight later. But uh, Eddie Van Halen passed away. Regis Philbin. Someone's like, who in the world is Regis Philbin? Yeah, Regis passed away. And Charlie Pride, a great icon of country music. Not to mention, we know that thousands and thousands of other folks uh, passed to eternity in the last year, and we don't know a lot of their names, they're not in the news, Uh, but each loss was tragic for that family, and each person is deeply missed and mourned, and so 2020 was a whole thing, right? I've talked about that, and if you're like me, uh, you had this uh, small glimmer of hope that when the calendar turned to 2021 that there was going to be maybe some good news on the horizon and possibly all the madness of 2020 would be put in the rearview mirror and we'd move blissfully forward into a new year. But we found out pretty quickly that 2021 would not be outdone by little brother 2020, okay? So I'm not going to make light of all this uh, much, but it's kind of like 2020 was like sitting around bragging, like look at all the mayhem and hardship and pain and difficulty and contention that I unleashed. And 2021 was like, hold my beer, okay? Uh, Let me show you. I see your pandemic and I see all this stuff. I'm going to raise you a capital invasion. I'm going to raise you a double impeached president and a Buffalo guy in the Capitol. So that's kind of what 2021 has brought us. And like we're 17 days into it now. And I'm already like, let's go back to the good old days of 2020 when things were a lot more normal and easy. Uh, On January the 7th, one of the best things that I saw well, somebody put it on the social media feed. I don't remember who it was. or give him credit. Uh, I would like to cancel my seven-day free subscription to 2021. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's that's about right. Um, but we are living in very unprecedented days. That is true. Very unforeseen, unbelievable days. Um, if 2021 Jason could travel back and rendezvous with uh, Jason of of, night, of 2019 in December of that year, and pull Jason aside and said, "Listen, in the next 13 months," Here are all the things that are going to happen in your country and in our society. Here's all the stuff that's coming down. Just list them. 2019, Jason would be like, you are crazy. Like, you've lost your mind. That stuff could never happen. You've made that up. You've been reading too many books or blogs or something. That is not possible. But then here we are, right? Here we are. And it's reality. And so... So many things has changed over the last 13 months or so. Things have been turned upside down. Many people's lives have been altered. Uh, Things are difficult. Uh, Things are damaged. Uh, All of us in this room, everybody watching online, has been affected in some way. Um, Good, bad, ugly by all the things that have happened over the course of the last 13 months. And I know uh, there are lots of political and social commentary about this is how you make sense of all the things. Okay, there's lots of... Uh, people talking about this is how you navigate these tumultuous waters that we are swimming in. And here's the right way in the correct way to process and frame everything that is happening. And I'm going to enlighten you with something that maybe you've never heard before. Everybody has an opinion, right? Everybody has an angle. Everybody has a perspective. Everybody does have a theory or an idea. And everyone is an expert on social media, Okay. Everyone, everyone knows about everything on social media to a T. So as believers, how do we rightly process the world we're living in? How do we begin to make heads or tails out of all the craziness and the chaos and the disunity and the upheaval that's happening almost like at breakneck speeds? Where do we look for truth? And here's the deal. I can unequivocally tell you that you're not going to find absolute truth in the mass media. You're not going to find absolute truth on your social media feed. Uh, You're not going to find it pretty much anywhere you Google on the internet because there really is lots of angles, lots of perspectives. It is, would you agree, it's really hard to know what to believe. It's really hard to know how to navigate. But here's the good news. There is one sure and steady place to find unfiltered, unbiased, unadulterated truth, and that's in God's perfect word. Okay? And so... We know that God's Word is perfect, that only God's Word can bring light into dark places. And only God's Word can help us make sense of very uncertain days and provide some measure of stability. I worked really hard on this next sentence, so I need you to be very impressed with what I'm about to do. Tapped into my Baptist alliteration roots, so listen up. Uh, Don't get so impressed with what I'm saying that you miss what I actually say, all right? Only the Word of God can cut directly through all of the cacophony, and contention with clarity, concision, and complete confidence. Thanks. It's a lot of C's. Cacophony just means a lot. It's just a real fancy way of saying a lot of noise. But the Bible is the only thing that can cut through that. And that's what we need to hear today because here's the deal with the Word of God. Only God's Word feeds our hearts. And really, the Word of God is the only thing that can renew our mind, refresh our spirit. It convicts our souls. The Word of God graciously exposes our idols It compels us to gospel action. That's why we as a church have committed so boldly to read through the Bible together in 2021. I hope you're doing that. It's not too late to get started. The cards are over here, Old Testament, New Testament. I encourage you to do that. Start working through the Word of God. It will not return void. Our small groups are working through the New Testament. If you're not in one, get in one. Feed your heart this year with the Word of God because we need, as Pastor Brandon said last Sunday, we desperately need to hear His truth. We need to marinate on it. We need to drown out all the other noise and simply focus in on his voice, particularly in this place this morning. And I'm going to, I want you to hear this next statement. If the lion's share of our time, attention, energy, and focus is wrapped up, overly concerned, and fixated on who sits in the White House in Washington more than who sits on the throne in heaven, then we're going to miss what God is doing. Okay, I'm not meant, trying to be political. It's important. It, it, it's, it's big stuff, significant stuff. Things that we should be concerned about. What's happening in the capital is serious. What's happening politically is serious and of consequence. But all of that is temporal and fleeting. But you know what's not temporal and fleeting? The hearts of boys and girls and men and women. Those are actually Eternal. So don't be fooled this morning into believing that the most significant battle being waged right now in this country is between those who follow a donkey and those who follow an elephant. That's not the most significant battle happening right now in our midst. The most significant battle is actually a cosmic battle of good and evil for the souls of your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, and your friends. That's the real battle that is being waged. And with the greatest amount of love I can muster, I need to call us to the fact that God's people need to stop arguing with one another. And finger pointing, and backbiting, and bickering, and instead, lock arms, united, and boldly fight the real enemy, which is the devil. And we don't talk about the devil a lot. I'm not sure why. Baptist churches pretty little talk about the devil. We're going to talk about the devil today, because the devil is real, and he is working harder now to distract believers away from what matters, and trying to pull people apart. And here's Satan's goal: he wants to snatch, and deceive, and distract unbelievers and believers from actually following the only thing that matters, which is the Lamb. So we need to wake up as the church of Jesus Christ from our slumber and our complacency and our apathy and realize that we are often being lulled into inaction and distracted. And that's leaving people in fear and isolation without hope in the world. Because our battle, listen, is not against one another. Your battle is not ultimately against somebody who's on the other side of the political aisle than you, despite what people want you to believe. Your battle and my battle against the devil and his demons Our true battle is about fighting the spiritual forces that we can't even actually see in all the mayhem that evil is unleashing. Philippi, I mean, Ephesians 6 says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The apostle Paul wrote those profound, insightful words to the church at Ephesus. He wrote them to that church because it was a church planted in the soil of a cosmic battle. Full of idols and paganism and the occult and witchcraft and sorcery. All kinds of sexual immorality. like it, All those things that were wonderfully seductive were happening in the city of Ephesus. Full of lots of money, and lots of commerce, lots of sports, the arts. All the finer things life could offer. All kinds of things that give the illusion of happiness, the illusion of satisfaction. Ephesus would, it would kind of be like if Las Vegas and Los Angeles had a baby. I mean, that's kind of the culture that's going on in Ephesus, and it was a city that was full of darkness and evil. Lots of people worshiping false things, trying to root their identity in something that can never satisfy them or sustain them. So even though we may be living in in what has been called unprecedented times, this battle has been going on a really long time. This battle of good versus evil has been going on a long time. But here's the really good news that I want you to hear as we jump in this morning. When the Word of God begins to infiltrate dark places, and when the gospel begins to expose sin And when the Spirit of God begins to move in powerful ways, incredible, undeniable, transformative things begin to happen. Lives get changed. Families get changed. Communities get changed. Cities, geographies are changed. And hope takes the place of despair. Joy replaces sadness. Confidence begins to replace insecurity. And truth will replace lies. And that's what's happening in the city of Ephesus. Paul is preaching powerfully. Last week, uh, as Brandon preached, we got to dip our toes a little bit into what God was doing in the city of Ephesus and how he was at work as Paul boldly proclaimed the gospel in the synagogue and in the city square for over two years. The gospel began to saturate the entire continent of Asia. Chapter 19, verse 10 says, This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. In those two years, all seven churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3 were planted. God is working in crazy ways. The gospel is exploding. The kingdom of God is pushing back the kingdom of man. And supernatural, miraculous things begin to occur that were unbelievable. And sinful men and women were turned to God and gave up old past and old habits. And as we get to our text today, we're going to be in chapter 19, picking up in verse 11. It is one of the most interesting, intriguing passages in all of the New Testament. I'm excited and giddy I get to preach to it because some of us have never read it. If you read it, you're like, what is that all about? It is really interesting. Uh, it's got a little bit of humor to it, and we'll work through that. But it is also deadly serious. It reveals the holiness of God. It reveals the majesty, the name of Jesus that we've been singing about. It shows the seriousness of sin, and it shows the beauty of repentance. So if you will, grab your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 19, um, and I'm going to ask you if you would stand for just a moment as you honor the reading and hearing of God's word. So I'm just going to read just a handful of verses. Acts 19, pick them in verse 11, read and through verse 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name, uh, adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and found it to came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray. Father, our simple prayer today and every day when we open and hear from your word is that the Spirit of God, through the word of God, reveal to us the Son of God. His name is Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. Before we start jumping into and unpacking the text, just want you to keep in your mind that Ephesus is this hotbed of paganism, the occult, all kinds of irreligiosity, idol worship, religious syncretism. You're like, what does that word mean? It means that they would take a little bit of this religion, a little bit of this belief, a little bit of this practice, piece it all together and create some framework of belief and practice. Really empty, devoid of any power or meaning, but that's what syncretism is. Take a little bit of this, take a little bit of that, put it together and see what we get. So when the Apostle Paul shows up and starts preaching the gospel, crazy things start happening. Miracles start happening directly through his interactions with folks and then indirectly through things that he had touched. Okay, it's crazy the things that are happening. As it happened, the people of Ephesus who are all about magic and sorcery and spells, they began to take notice of like, what is happening? Their interests were piqued. Like they would have dogged some Harry Potter and some Lord of the Rings. And they had geeked out on all of that because it was right up their alley because was, they, were, they were all about those things. We're about to find out, hear me. The religious syncretism does not pair well with Jesus because Jesus' name cannot be hijacked for your purposes. You cannot simply add Jesus to all the other things you and I might be doing and expect it to work out smoothly. You cannot misuse the name of Jesus for your own personal benefit and ultimately get away with it because Christianity and the gospel are not BFFs with every other religion. They're not all the same. They're vastly different. Jesus is not just one of the gods or one of the goddesses. He's not just another way or another truth. He says, I am what? The way, the truth, the life. Those are definite articles. This is the only way. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Dr. Luke is exactly right. Extraordinary things are happening through the apostle Paul. And not just through his interaction with folks personally, but like I said, through the things that he had touched. It says handkerchiefs and aprons worn by him. He was a tent maker. There were things that he would wear, have the apron as he was doing his work, the uh, handkerchief that he would wipe his brow with. And because they had touched him and the Holy Spirit was powerfully working through Paul, those things were then carried to the sick and the infirmed and the disease-ridden and those afflicted by demons, and they were set free and they were healed. And I want to stop it there for just a skinny minute to unpack that, make sure we're on the same page. Paul does not have the power. It is Jesus and the Holy Spirit working powerfully through Paul that are doing the miracles and the supernatural. Paul was an apostle with a capital A. He was one of the very few select men who had direct encounters with Jesus, the risen Christ, and was then commissioned to go and preach the gospel. These select men were breathed on uh, with the Holy Spirit, empowered to take the gospel around the area boldly, and they were given the ability and the authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. This was an anointing on these very specific men at a very specific time. Now, why does that matter? Because texts like this have been hijacked. To proclaim a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that is not true. And you can find it on TBN anytime you want to tune in. And these folks will get up on TV and preach a gospel that actually enslaves and deceives people. Declaring that they have the same anointing as the Apostle Paul or Peter. Sow a seed into what I'm doing. Give money because giving money is a test of your faith. And the more faith you have, the more you give. And the more you give, the more beholden God is to bless you. He has to. He has to give you what you ask for. He has to heal you. He has to take care of your pain. And they'll have these big services and say it's a healing service and they'll whip out these quick phrases and whip their jackets around and call people to a frenzy. But no real healing actually happens. If you don't believe me, one of the most well-known guys is Benny Hinn. His nephew, Costi, has been transformed and saved out of that. Go read his blog. Go read his book. He will unpack it for me. To show you, it's just a bunch of charlatans. It's not real because if someone had the gift of healing, why are they not at Brenner's Hospital today? Why are well, they not traipsing through the halls of St. Jude's healing sick little boys and girls? It's because they don't have the power. They're claiming something they don't have, but they will tell you and exhort you if you will send your money, I will send you a prayer cloth. I sweat it on. I tried to get Brandon to bring his bandanas to me this morning, and I was going to wear them, then maybe put them out on the table out there and see what we could get. But that's what they will say. I'll give you this prayer cloth. I remember one particular guy a number of years ago was trying to buy like a $25 million jet. So he could fly around the world and do all his ministry because he was not, he couldn't possibly ride on a commercial airliner with normal people. Because he was far better than them. But if he would give money towards buying this jet, he would send you, out of his graciousness, a replica of the jet to put on your desk. I've read the Bible a lot of times. And I can tell you, there is not one apostle in the Bible who's trying to get rich off the name of Jesus. Nobody was selling out the gospel for their own prosperity. Not one. If you find one, tell me. Not one. But we have so many folks trying to get fat and happy by manipulating God's word for their own fame and their own glory. And one day those cats will be accountable. You may think they're getting away with it, but they're not getting away with it. One day they will face judgment and they will be exposed as peddlers of the gospel they don't actually believe. But before I move on, let me do, I do want to say this. I fully believe that we have a God who still does miracles. I still fully believe that we have a God who does heal people in supernatural ways. I still very much believe that God does things that we can't imagine or understand because He's God and He's holy. But I want us to understand that the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's describing what God has done in the world. It's not a formula, plug this in and it'll work just this way. It's describing how God has been at work in the world. It's not a recipe for success. Okay? God is not a God of repetition or duplication. The Bible says, I'm doing a new thing, I create new things. And I'm doing things all around the world. I know that God brings dead people back to life. I know that happens. I know people come from death to life. I know that God does whatever's necessary to bring him maximum glory. And we as the church of Jesus Christ should always pray boldly for healing. The book of James says, call upon the elders to come and pray for you. With boldness, without doubt, believe that God can heal and raise you up. God can do what God wants to do, but not because you have a magic spell, an incantation, or a prayer cloth. Because God will do what God wants to do in the life of every person for his glory and for his praise. You cannot hijack the name of Jesus. The seven sons of Sceva are about to learn a really hard lesson. These dudes, hear me, are Jewish itinerant exorcists. Okay? Let that sink in for a minute. Their business card said, I'm an itinerant Jewish exorcist. So what does that mean? Let's look and see. Verse 13 that some of these itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of a Jewish priest, high priest named Sceva, were doing this. So these dudes, brothers, are traveling around as exorcists Their father's Jewish high priest named Sceva. Now, Jewish history doesn't actually say that Sceva was a high priest. It doesn't actually mention him at all. So most scholars say he's probably not a real high priest. He may have just hijacked that term, added it to uh, his name so that his business could could have some street cred as exorcist. Legit exorcist. Because, hear me, exorcism was a big business. It was. it was. It was a lot of money involved in exorcism. It was a common trade. Like, people's business cards said, I'm a Jewish exorcist. Now, when you meet somebody new, you always, always say, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a banker. I'm a doctor. I'm a pastor. I am a Jewish exorcist. I'm like, well, that trumps anything that I could have said in this moment. So these dudes had the best uh, job description of anybody that you may have ever met. They were like the Jewish Ghostbusters, Okay. That's kind of what they did travel around doing these magical things, trying to use incantations, uh, really impress people. Well, what we need to realize is this there were enough demon possession to keep them in business. We really underestimate Satan. We really underestimate demons. If we could see for half a second around us what actually has happened supernaturally, it would freak us out. I'm not trying to scare anybody, but the Bible says very clearly, it's happening, you just don't see it. There's a place in the Old Testament where God opens the eyes of a servant and the mountains were ablaze with fiery angels. Like what God is doing in and around us in the spiritual realm is unbelievable. In In our civilized Western society, we just don't think about those things a lot. We kind of push them to the side. But I've been in places around the world where darkness is tangible. I've got planes in China and I felt the oppression like it was sitting on top of me. I've been in places where things that are evil are very much at work in evident. And to keep it 100% with you, there have been two distinct times in my life that I've encountered something demonic. Once when I was 22, and the other time when I was in the Myanmar on my first mission trip there. And I'm going to give you all the details. You can, I'll, I'll just prime the pump. You can take me to lunch or get me coffee, and I'll unpack that for you sometime. You can pay me to prosper off my story, um, you know, because that's exactly what I'm preaching this morning. But I will tell you that both those encounters were heavy and scary, and the, the hairs of my arm are still sticking up right now because it was real. It's no joke. If you listen to missionaries around the world, they will tell you real stories about what's happening in the spiritual realm. So Satan is not a joke. He is waging a battle for the souls of men and women, and he's deceiving and destroying and devastating people. The Bible says for good reason he is a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. He's a worthy adversary, able to destroy and dismantle and deceive. But I want you to hear me. If you know Jesus, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. Why not? Because he is also a defeated foe. That's good news. I don't don't think you heard me. He is actually a defeated foe because the Bible says Jesus already won the war. He triumphed over these guys, humiliated them in the cross and through the empty tomb so he's a defeated foe, he knows his days are short, his leash is short, but he is hell-bent on causing as much havoc as he can while he's got at the time. And what, that's why the Bible, if you read the New Testament, it says believers be vigilant, be watchful, be aware, be ready in prayer against the attacks and schemes of the evil one. You need not Google a Jewish exorcist to come help you out. You already have a Savior who's taking care of it. Okay. When I had those things happen to me, the only thing I could think to do was say the name of Jesus and sing Jesus loves me. Because that's all that, that's, there's no power in anything else. There's no power in anything. that Jesus is who defends us and takes care of us. So these seven sons of Sceva thought they could take the name of Jesus and use it for their own benefit. They're trying to pick up the name of Jesus and wield it like some magic sword against the demons. They had no business even trying to do it. And they're about to understand that was a really bad mistake. Okay? 13. They are to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying... I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of Jewish high priests keeper were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul recognized, but who in the world are you? They're trying to evoke the name of Jesus, trying to take Jesus up, hear me team, like a hobby. For their plans and their purposes. They were Jewish, they did not know Jesus as a Savior. They knew the Old Testament, they had some familiarity with the Messiah, they didn't believe Jesus was it. They're using Jesus as an add-on, as a side hustle to wield the name of Jesus for their own benefit. Devoid of power, devoid of a relationship, and it went really bad for them. I love what the Spirit says. Jesus I know, Paul recognized, but who are you? The demon sets him straight. If you read through the New Testament, the demons always got Jesus right. Every time Jesus encountered a demon, they said, you are Jesus, Like they always, their theology is solid. They don't, they're not going to be in heaven, but their theology was solid when it came to Jesus. We know exactly who you are. And we know Paul. Paul's got on our radar because he's preaching the gospel and he's healing and casting out demons. And we know who he is. He says, I don't have a clue who you boys are. And that's a pretty big diss. You got no street cred. Why are you talking to me? You got no power. You got no authority. You're trying to do something you can't have any business doing. You're a bunch of imposters. Sixteen. And the man in whom the, was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked, that's what he said in old it, naked and wounded. Listen up. Clear, listen up. If you have ever been in a fight and at the beginning of the fight you had on pants and when that fight ended you did not have on pants. You did not win said fight. Okay, if you literally get the clothes beaten off of you, you are not the victor. Okay, I'm just telling you, you did not win said fight. This one demon-possessed man whooped these seven brothers, whooped them, dominated them, took them to the woodshed, and wore those fellas out because demon-possessed people are powerful. They're no joke, one demon, a legion of demons, it doesn't matter. He whooped all of them, and those seven boys were wounded. That goes without saying they were wounded physically and emotionally and mentally. They probably changed their job. Like, no more of this garbage. We've got to do something else for a line of work because this is not for us. Because they understood very quickly, you cannot take the name of Jesus for your own purposes and get away with it. You don't get to hijack Jesus and think nothing's going to happen to you. See, in our world today, far too many people are trying to use the name of Jesus to justify their actions. They're trying to use the name of Jesus to justify an agenda, justify a desire, as ungodly as it may be. They're trying to use the name of Jesus to perpetuate some calls or or some angle or validate some opinion or to finance their own convenience. Jesus is not going to have it. The Bible says that he is jealous for his own name and his own glory. You don't get to take up Jesus like a tag-on or a side hustle or a hobby and add him to the list of other things like he's a genie in the bottle at your beck and call. Jesus is not some magical rabbit's foot you put in your pocket and pull him out when you need him and put him back in when you don't. Jesus says, what about himself? I'm the king of the kings and lord of lords. I'm the alpha. I'm the omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the bright and morning star. I'm the line of the tribe of Judah. I am the ancient of days. Hear me. You don't take up Jesus. He takes you up. <laughs> You don't grab a hold of him, he grabs a hold of you. And as Brendan says every week, it is not Jesus plus anything or anyone. It is not Jesus plus your Judaism. It is not Jesus plus your moralism. It is not Jesus plus your universalism. It is not Jesus and secularism. It's not Jesus and some good works. It's not even Jesus and religion. It's Jesus and that's enough. It's Christ and Christ alone. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus' is perfect life. His sacrificial death, His resurrection is sufficient, beautiful, and wonderful. And that's all we need. He and He alone is the Redeemer. But I do love this. I love that even in this text, that God in His sovereignty can use any means necessary to spread the gospel far and wide. I love that God can work in any situation to draw people to Himself. So He used this high-end whooping of the seven sons of Sceva to saturate the entire city with the gospel. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That word extolled means this, magnified, glorified, exalted all throughout the city of Ephesus. Now the name of Jesus is not being extolled because miraculous things were happening through handkerchiefs and aprons, particularly. The name of Jesus had been extolled because these dudes got whooped by hijacking the name of Jesus. And it scared people to death. Like, this guy, Jesus, is legit. We we, we can't just use this name flippantly. Like, there's something about that name that is serious and sacred. And we are not going to misuse it, but there's reason to fear this name and ascribe glory and honor to this name. You see, brothers and sisters, oh, that that name of Jesus will be extolled on the lips of every man, woman, and child in this city. Oh, that the name of Jesus will be extolled throughout this whole geography, the name of Jesus would be extolled on the lips of those who live in Pufftown, in Walnut Cove, in Lexington, in Greensboro, in High Point, that it would spread far and wide. Can you imagine what revival would break out if the name of Jesus was extolled and far and wide an awakening came up as lives were transformed? And that's what's going down in Ephesus. Verse 18. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Said at the beginning that when the gospel infiltrates the darkness and the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit begins to blow through a wicked city, incredible things start to happen. These men and women who have been just indoctrinated in paganism and the occult, they turn to the Lord. Those who've been doing magic and sorcery were radically transformed by the gospel. And they were moved to radical repentance over their wickedness, over their sin. And they began to expose all of their evil practices and bring what they were doing in secret into the light. They began to disclose the wicked things that they've been doing and confess their practices. Because hear me, they wanted to fully follow Jesus, they did not want to keep their sin in the shadows. They didn't want to hide the things they were doing that nobody else knew about. They wanted to seek after Jesus in his holiness and his godliness. The text says that many of them were magicians and sorcerers. And they brought their spell books full of incantations to be burned in the sight of all. Now, I know we don't really know to wrap our mind around this because this is not really true, uh, most likely for most of us. We've not been around this or experienced this. But in Ephesus not only was the exorcism a major trade, but there's a lot of money being made by people bringing spells and incantations that were being collected into books and scrolls and sold. I mean, it's legit. Lots of money being made because people were so consumed and fixated on all things magic and all things sorcery that they would collect books and people would buy them and take them home and practice. And these believers who, who just met the Lord says, "Hear me, I want to take a, I want to make a clean break from my pagan past." I want to commit my heart and my affections and my desires fully to Jesus, and I will do whatever extreme measure is necessary so that I don't, I'm not tempted to go back to who I used to be. Because that's what Satan wants you to do. We'll going to save you out of this, but then if you don't fully follow Jesus, he's always going to dangle what was in your past to try to lure you back. He's really good at it. So these guys and girls came forward and tossed their magic books into the fire. They were burned one by one, came and tossed them in the fire and watched them get devoured. They said, we are not messing around with the sin of our past anymore. I'm not going to allow my old way of living to creep back in. I'm not going to give devil an inch in my life. And it says, everyone saw them do it. Fellow believers and unbelievers alike. Here's what's interesting. This means that around that massive bonfire, there were some witches and some pagans and some occultists and some idolaters who used to hang out with these other folks. And they're walking up and they're saying, so-and-so, we were just doing some spells last week and he's tossing that book in the fire. What happened to him? Wait, 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 wait. We were just over here worshiping in the, in the temple of Artemis the other day and doing some really whacked out, un- inappropriate things. But now he's talking about Jesus? Who is that? Because you know what? A transform lives affects other people. When God's people are saved and they actually live like they're saved, other people begin to take notice. Why are you not drinking with me anymore? Why are we not going to the club like we used to go? Why are we not doing the drugs that we used to do? Why are we not partaking of all these things we used to do because I'm changed? That's not who I am anymore. Well, tell me about that. What happened? And that's what's happening in Ephesus. They saw what was happening and they began to take notice. I'm sure they started asking questions because a changed life will create questions. problem is too many Christians don't live very changed lives we look so much like the world nobody takes notice that we're different and here's a side note and this is just for your pleasure how many of you were alive in the early 90s like you were not just a baby but you like you know um, Back in the 1990s, it was all the rage in youth groups uh, to get together, and we would find a, a disclosed location, and we would set a fire. Not, not of a house or anything, but just like a bonfire, somebody's yard. And then uh, there was this real push uh, to bring your ungodly, unholy CDs and toss them in the fire. Some of you don't know what a CD is, but you would come, and you'd toss your CDs in the fire as a way to show, and you're burning up, and you're letting go. And so I remember, very sadly, bringing my Green Day Dookie album. Uh, LAUGHTER Anybody had that album? Yeah, Green Day Dookie. Don't go look it up. But I had that album, and I got it for $16 at the Astral Mall from Camelot Music. Uh, and I remember tossing it in, and I was so sad. I don't know what else I had, but I tossed that in. I was like, oh, Lord, here you go. I love you. Take, take this album. And I'm sure God was well pleased. But didn't it cost me a lot of money, right? It didn't cost me a lot of money, maybe a little bit of pride. But what is burning in Ephesus is significant. 50,000 pieces of silver. If you do the math and you uh, use the, the inflation rate, and you do the currency exchange, which I have for your benefit, they're burning in excess of $6 million. That's a whole lot of money to go up in flames, isn't it? So why do they not just sell those books and give the money to the poor? I mean, that would be noble. That would be a much better idea. That's more financially fiscal. Why would you burn stuff and you get some money for it and give it to somebody else? God would be more honored than that. Remember when Jesus was sitting in somebody's house some tax collectors or some sinners, and this random woman comes in with an albaster jar of perfume. Very expensive, it says. And she walks right up to Jesus, and she breaks it. She breaks it, and she anoints Jesus' body. And it says the perfume filled the whole house. And what happened? The disciples and some other folks began to rebuke her. That's wasteful. Why in the world would you waste something that could be sold and the money given to the poor? Why would you waste it? And ultimately, saying, said, why would you waste it on Jesus? And what does Jesus do? He says he rebuked them. He said, what she has done is beautiful. It will be told about her from now on. It's in the Bible. It will be told of her because what she has done is out of worship and reverence. I want you to listen to the next statement very clearly. Those folks burning their magic books did not care at all about the money they were losing because they were so consumed with the treasure they had found. And when you find the greatest treasure, you don't care what it costs you. They only cared about declaring and demonstrating that they were now followers of Jesus and let everything else go. They cut loose every sinful anchor that was holding them back to pursue the Lord. And the impact was significant and powerful. Look at verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to prevail mightily, which means it began to spread all across the region as the word of God prevailed against evil and wickedness and darkness was pushed back and the church grew and lives were changed and idolaters became followers. And pagans became redeemed kids of God, and the name of Jesus went from being misused to being extolled. You see, in Ephesus, there's this beautiful example of gospel transformation. What unlikely converts lived in Ephesus? Some of you are sitting right here, and you used to be an unlikely convert. Some of you have people in your life that you're thinking, there's just no way. God, there's just no way. There's too far gone. They're just doing some things that they're not interested. Like, what they're doing is so ungodly. that they're not even interested anymore. Like, there's just no way. I want you to be reminded from the book of Acts chapter 19 in the city of Ephesus that God can save anybody at any time, at any place. And there's nobody in your life that's too far gone to be saved or too caught up in some crap to be saved or too caught up in the occult or Satanism or some other uh, religious system that God cannot radically save them and draw them to himself. Keep praying for them. Keep engaging them with the gospel. And here's the deal. I say that with this understanding, as Brandon alluded to a minute ago. Right here, right now in this room, God can save you. Maybe you're sitting in your living room right now and you don't know Jesus. Maybe today's the day that Jesus grabs a hold of your heart and draws you to himself. Just because you're in church doesn't mean you know Jesus. Just because I sit in my garage doesn't make me a car. And maybe you're here because it's obligation or routine. But maybe God has never transformed your heart. Today may be the day of your salvation. Today may be the day that you're moved from death to life in Christ. That you turn from your sin, claim Jesus as the great treasure, and root your identity in what he has done for you. and the name of Jesus, will for the first time purely be extolled from your lips. That's my prayer. But my assumption is this. Most of us in this room, most of us who are watching online would say that we're believers. We would say that we know Jesus. We'd say we've been following Jesus. That we've tasted of God's goodness and his kindness and his grace and his mercy. And we've been transformed by his love and we've we've confessed him as Lord. But here's my question, team. Are you living like it? Does your life reflect what you say you believe? Are we truly living as if Jesus is our Savior and Lord? Or are there things in our own lives that have crept in and caused us to drift away from him? Here's a few questions I want you to ponder as we head towards the end. Are there any secret sins that you're hiding in the shadows right now? Perhaps justifying day by day, moment by moment, just saying it's okay, but all the way it's killing you and it's robbing you of your joy and keeping you from walking in the light that God has called you to. Are there any areas in your life where you're compromising your integrity? By the things that you're watching, listening to, engaging in, all the while say, God's okay with this. I'm preaching to myself as well. This is not just for you. It's like, am, am, am I doing things that are just not honoring to the Lord? Are there places and spaces in your lives that are not intentional pursuits of holiness, but instead are just schemes of the devil? So, as you ponder your answer to those questions, and we'll have a moment in a minute for everybody to tell us what your answer is. Uh, I'm sure you want to, we'll just have a divulging of all your secrets in just a second. But as you ponder those questions, I want to just give you a quick glimpse as to what happened in the church of Ephesus a little, Ephesus a little later on down the road. As you know, Paul wrote a letter to the church of Ephesus called Ephesians. And if you've read the letter of Ephesians, if you haven't, you should. Strong doctrinally, strong theologically. Paul emphasizes in that letter the cosmic redemptive work of Jesus to redeem sinners. And he emphasized Christ's triumphant nature as the head of the church and over all things. And Paul wrote to those uh, Ephesian believers those specific things because he knew they needed to be reminded uh, in order to stay resolute to their allegiance to Christ. That he was a supreme power at work in their lives and in the world. He wrote those things because he knew they would really struggle to live those out. He knew that Satan and his demons would very much continue to try to deceive them and distract them and and that they would try to move them back into old ways of thinking and and living. He knew that they would be tempted to compromise what they knew was good and right and true. And he knew they'd be prone to drift away from their commitment to Jesus. And you know what? He was right. That is exactly what happened. The Ephesian believers struggled to live out of their identity in Christ and struggled to remain steadfast in their affection and love for Jesus. And we know that because of Revelation chapter 2. It'll be on the screen. I won't make you turn there. The seven letters written to the churches. First letters written to the church at Ephesus. Hear these words of Jesus to the church at Ephesus. I know your works, Ephesians. Your toil and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And have found them to be false. Ephesians, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And I know you have not grown weary. But Ephesians, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Church family, the Ephesians had all the right doctrine, all the right theology, Working hard for Jesus, laboring, enduring with patience, steadfast, not growing weary. But Jesus writes to him and says, those are all great, but I have this one thing against you. You have drifted away from your first love. You have abandoned the initial fervor and passion and affection you had for me when you first came to me. And now despite all the really great things you were doing, your love for me has grown cold and stale. And what is his words to them? You need to repent. That's a lost word today. <laughs> you need to repent. One theologian said all of the Christian life should be that of repentance. So you need to repent because you've drifted away from me. Repent and return to me. So Redemption Hill family, those who know Jesus, here's my word for you as I close. Perhaps that's the same word that Jesus is saying to us this morning individually. Repent. I'm not trying to call you out individually. I don't know all the things on in your life, but I do know that all of us have a reason to repent. Maybe we need to repent of all the distractions that are keeping us from pursuing Christ with a deep devotion. Maybe we need to repent of how we've allowed good things to become ultimate things and recommit our affections to Jesus. Maybe we need to repent of areas where we make compromises and justifications where we're allowing Satan to get a foothold in our lives. Maybe we need to repent and turn from the practice in our life that are just not making us holy, godly, or pure. Perhaps we repent for how our love for Jesus really has grown rather cold and stale. And this morning, maybe our step of obedience is, Jesus, would you reignite in me the passion and the joy that I had at first? Jesus, would you awaken my heart to your glory, to your truth, into the fullness and satisfaction that only you can offer? Church family, in 2021, may this be a year where our love for Jesus gets deeper and wider and stronger. May this be a year marked with a renewed, bold devotion to Christ. And what a beautiful thing it'll be if the name of Jesus would be extolled on all of our lips.